special double edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. Now, I was going to use the idea of a double episode as an excuse for why I didn't put out an episode last Monday, um, but the actual reason is that this happens to just be a double case that the UK Supreme Court decided. So the name of this particular case is Willers and Joyce in substitution for and in their capacity as executors of Albert Goubet deceased. And the citation for this case is 2016 UKSC 43 and 44. And as I say in this episode we're going to look at both of the cases and we'll see the reason why the Supreme Court dealt with the main case in number 43 but there was another separate question to answer in 44, and this has general provision across the entire English legal system, and so is really important. Um, For this reason, the case was decided by nine judges rather than the usual panel of five or perhaps even seven, and so we can see the importance of this case. So in terms of the facts, the case really took place between two particular people. Firstly, Albert Goubet, who you may have sort of realised from the title, is now dead. Um, He was at one time one of the richest men in Britain, um, founder of the supermarket Quicksave. Um, Perhaps some of you will be aware of that particular shop. Um, And in this particular instance, he was um, the owner of Langston, which was a leisure company. The other person involved in the case was a director at this leisure company called Langston, and his name was Willers. Now, unfortunately, the two men didn't really get along very well, and so in 2010, Willers was dismissed from his post at Langston, and Albert Goubet then went further and decided to sue Willers on the basis of his apparent financial misconduct and breach of a fiduciary duty. Willers felt that this case was not really brought for his breach of conduct in any sense of the word, but rather was brought by Goubet because the two men didn't get on, and so was effectively a malicious prosecution just to try and ruin the reputation of Willers. With this in mind, Willers wanted to sue Albert Goubet for malicious prosecution, but the problem is that while malicious prosecution can exist between individuals in a criminal context, there is currently no such provision within a civil context. And so the reason that this case is really important and the reason why it got to the highest court in the land is because there was an important point to be decided. Could a case for malicious prosecution be brought within a civil context between two individual litigants? In the end, the court split on this decision five to four and it was Lord Tolson who gave the judgment for the majority. He basically said that where a person has suffered an injury as a result of being prosecuted maliciously, surely it's only fair that that person then receives compensation for the way that they've been treated. Perhaps that person has not been able to get another job because they've had this ongoing litigation. They've probably lost a lot of money in the way as well and also suffered a dent to their reputation, for example. So if a person has suffered a loss in this way, or an injury, whether that's financial or otherwise, surely there should be the option within the civil law system for bringing a case for malicious prosecution. This all sounds fair enough, so I guess the question is, what would be the arguments against it? If the case was decided 5-4, to four, What was it that the dissenting judges didn't like about the idea of malicious prosecution being available for civil litigants? 
Well, it was Lord Newberger, who's the president of the Supreme Court, who was also the lead dissenting judge in this particular case. And he gave a number of key reasons why this shouldn't be allowed. These reasons include that such a tort of malicious prosecution would be inconsistent with the general rule that exists in civil law, that a litigant owes no duty to his opponent in the conduct of civil litigation. In other words, those of you who have studied tort law will know that there is generally a requirement for a duty of care, and that no such duty occurs between opponents in civil litigation. A couple of the other reasons that Lord Newberger pointed out as well was that this did create the possibility of satellite litigation and that this might be dangerous because you could end up in a situation where people keep suing each other and then there's the argument that another person is bringing the case maliciously. This creates more litigation itself. Um, it's more work for the courts and perhaps more importantly, it creates a system where the richest person could win because they could just keep bringing cases and cases. To be honest, this seems a little bit like a doomsday argument, and I'm not sure it's a, a very good reason for dismissing the idea of malicious prosecution, so we won't really investigate that idea much further. The third reason that Lord Newberger gives, and I want to highlight here, is that it could affect people bringing a case of civil litigation in the first place. In other words, if a person knows that when they bring a case against someone, that they themselves could be charged with civil litigation, then this could possibly discourage legitimate cases being brought to court simply because people are fearing that a case of malicious prosecution would then in turn be brought against them. I think for similar reasons as we talked about before, i.e. that this would create a vicious cycle of litigation, is perhaps a bit overstated and it's questionable whether the Supreme Court should be making their decisions based on what they predict future litigation might look like. So I think we can say by looking at Lord Newberger's arguments that the main idea behind this is that there is a duty of care between people whenever a tort is established. So how did the majority judges get round this idea and how can they introduce the tort of malicious prosecution um, when this is a factor that has to be dealt with? Well, the truth is that Lord Tolson dealt with it rather simply and basically said that for malicious prosecution, there isn't a duty of care and so this will be a tort where a duty of care does not exist in the first instance. This is obviously interesting, and Lord Tolson offered as an alternative that instead of a duty of care, that there would be liability. But it's still questionable about whether this starting point of all tort cases can really be dismissed as easily as that. Lord Tolson did go back in the case law by about 400 years and looked at a range of cases in support of his arguments, but the truth of the matter is that the idea of the tort of malicious prosecution that is to exist without a duty of care per se is really going to create issues going forward about what it means to not have a duty of care and what it can mean for imposing this liability on people. I'm not in a position to make predictions about future litigation and I wouldn't want to because that would make me hypocritical for the reasons that I suggested that Lord Newberger's reasoning was incorrect in this instance. Instead, I think I would want to come to the judgment of Lord Sumption, who was one of the other dissenting judges in this particular case. He argued that when we're recognising a new area of liability, such as in this case where we're looking at malicious prosecution, then the liability or the tort has to develop in such a way that there are clear rules for establishing what liability is 
and what will cause a person to um, have to pay out compensation to another person for committing this tort. Essentially, Lord Sumption argues that whether it's malicious prosecution, whether it's the law of tort in general, or whether it's any other area of law, it's important that it develops in a consistent manner which is in line with society and the way that that is currently thinking. For the Supreme Court to advocate such big jumps in the law is really to go against the way that the law ought to develop and can create a great degree of uncertainty. I'm not sure whether I agree with the overall conservatism of Lord Sumption in this particular case. After all, it is important that the law does develop and the Supreme Court shouldn't hold itself back simply because it wants to be in line with society. There are some cases where it will be important for the Supreme Court to lead the way, and we've seen many cases down the years, even going back to when the House of Lords was the top court in the UK, where it's actually been the leading courts and the leading judges that have influenced society and influenced the way that the law has developed and has been interpreted. However, I do agree with some of the ideas that Lord Sumption is putting forward. If the law is going to develop in this way, then, as I said earlier, there has to be clear rules about the way in which the tort of malicious prosecution operates, and I'm not sure that that has clearly been set out yet. Perhaps this will come forward in future case law, but it does reveal a degree of uncertainty, and so it wouldn't be surprising if in the next one or two years, a lot of cases do make it back to the Supreme Court that concern malicious prosecution, and basically ask the Supreme Court judges to explain what they meant when they allowed for the tort of malicious prosecution. So what about this other case then? We said that Willis and Joyce was a two-parter, so we've done number 43, and what about number 44 in the Supreme Court ledger? Well, one of the questions that came up in the case was the relationship between the Privy Council and the English courts. In other words, if the Privy Council has decided a case in one way, how should the English courts respond to it and should they see it as a guiding precedent or are they able to depart from what the Privy Council says? The Supreme Court responded in a relatively short manner to clear up this question and they said that English courts generally will follow the judgments of the Privy Council as a persuasive authority. However, it's important to note that if there is a difference between the authority given by the Privy Council and the authority given by a higher court within the UK hierarchy, then it is the court that is within the UK hierarchy that will take precedence. This is obviously the general rule, but the Supreme Court in this instance provided an exception to it. If the Privy Council is in the process of deciding a case, and they consider that a previous decision, whether that's from the House of Lords, or the Supreme Court, or even the Court of Appeal, is wrong, then the Privy Council can make a decision that goes against that of the English Court. And furthermore, they can say that this decision now represents the law in England and Wales. In other words, the Privy Council can and does have the power to overturn previous case law from the English court system. The reason for this is relatively simple. The panel of judges that makes up the Privy Council is generally the same as that which makes up the panel of judges for the Supreme Court, and therefore it makes sense that if it's the same judges making the decision, then they would be able to overrule themselves. 
This decision does have the potential to grant the Privy Council a greater degree of power, but the reality of the situation is that the Privy Council will probably not use this power very often. The reason that such a judgement like this is useful is because when the Privy Council does face a particular question, they can take the opportunity to treat it almost as if it was a UK Supreme Court case and issue the same binding authority without having to wait for a different case to come up through the UK hierarchy and arrive at the Supreme Court so that the same panel of judges would be able to make the same decision again. Well, thank you very much for listening to this double episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. The Supreme Court is now back in session and we're in the process on this podcast of catching up with them. Hopefully we might get somewhere close by the end of the year, although I'll probably make no promises and we might start again in 2017. Um, We'll see how that goes. In the meantime, make sure to leave a review in iTunes and a review as well because that really helps the podcast and helps other people to discover it. And I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye.